You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. A uh, very warm welcome to all of our listeners who are tuning in. You're listening to Voice of Islam radio station and this is the Drive Time Show. Join us for the next two hours now from 4 till 6 p.m. as we, uh, as per our usual uh, uh, routine we uh, go through two uh, topics uh, two you know very uh, pertinent topics that we've chosen for you today uh, first of all we're going to talk about international aid um, in the first hour and the importance of aid what difference it makes worldwide and then in the second hour we're going to talk about the gun laws around the world and we're also going to look at especially um, the uh, gun laws of the United States um, so yeah so two 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 very interesting topics uh, today and you're joined by myself uh, Safir and uh, Fahim here um, in the studios broadcasting from Baitul Fatu Mosque um, here in uh, modern London Fahim assalamu alaikum how are you doing Waalaikumsalam. I'm good how are you yeah good um, uh, you know very interesting uh, topics to to go through today so hopefully we'll be um looking forward really to important as yeah. well right yeah. two two things you know international aid and the roles of the role of gun control i think they're two topics that we can probably never stop talking enough about and dissect so looking forward to it exactly so uh let's crack on with the first topic of discussion today um we will start with a verse of the Holy Quran to to get things up to speed. And the first verse that uh, we have uh, chosen to link to the topic of today is uh, uh, from chapter 2, uh, verse 216, where um, Allah the Almighty says, I mean, I mean this is the Holy Quran, um, they ask thee what they shall spend, say, whatever of good and abundant wealth you spend, you should be for parents, near relatives and orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and whatever good you do surely Allah knows it perfectly well so there is no question that you know the world's economic condition today is complex and far-reaching um, it includes such is- issues as government and economy uh, poverty welfare homelessness all of these issues and you know to to be to be very honest i mean looking at the current situation where there is an economic crisis uh, literally um in the whole world um uh, right today we we got the news about the biggest interest rate hike in decades um yep. as as the banks have warned of a long recession mm. that is upon us um, the Bank of England, uh, you know, have now raised interest rates by uh, all the way to about three um, percent, the the biggest hike since 1989. Um, wow. So it's a very challenging. Uh, uh, I, I remember reading um, 
on the news that uh, that already people are suffering from after covid financially yeah. and now people will not only be suffering paying you know more money for bills more money for food um and people can't afford buying houses now because they can't afford the mortgage definitely and you, and you said that it, it's 1989 right so that's 33 years ago. Mm. like 33 years that's, that's a long time yeah. uh even though you know the 1980 seems like only yesterday but um <laughs> like i think that it's yeah international aid or for me it always i think the question people start to ask is okay if we've got economic problems in the country should we be supporting outside right yeah. that's the thing that a lot of people often start to i've seen it online a lot is that i mean isn't that something that we just discussed as well i think in the in the government as well they were they were thinking about it wasn't exactly. it i mean I'm, i'm not sure but i think that was also on the agenda that they might reduce the the support the because of the situation because yeah. of the situation in the UK and and this is why I mean like i think that international aid is 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 important i think that islam teaches you to look after others and um on that perspective it really works well but you know people have had a very tough time you know mm. the the pandemic the rise in energy prices it's it's all kind of like culminating in mm. into one big snowball and it's like having that snowball effect and what i'm finding is that um this recession has kind of been looming for a while yeah. and it just feels like it's it's just there isn't yeah. it it's coming and it also feels like that the uh, you know policy makers or the politicians should have, i mean as you mentioned that it's been there the the, the thought mm. has been there for a while and we've been we could easily have predicted that things will get worse yep. have people done enough to to kind of make themselves mm. ready for it i mean it doesn't seem like it with with the chaos um you know at the top here in the uk for example however uh, we know the international aid is very important to help countries that are still developing um yeah, but it, it, is sufficient aid still being provided i mean is it is it really fair what uh, countries are are providing that's another question um according to oxfam more than a quarter of a billion people around the world could be pushed into extreme poverty after the increase in global food prices after the russian invasion of the ukraine and uh, the impact of the pan- pandemic as we talked about that and also the rise in global inequality um approximately 263 million people could be pushed into extreme poverty this year alone i mean that's a staggering number and that's uh, the same wow. you know to to the population of the uk for germany france so if you were to compare it that uh, that number would be the all of the population of the uk germany france and spain so just imagine that many four, people wow. yeah four countries four population countries. all going into extreme poverty yeah. this year this year is not a matter of wow i think uh it's it's because it's it's happening isn't it because many developing countries have cut their health spending over the last 2 years yeah. as well and you know sometimes with the intention to make debt repayments to richer country uh, creditors and yeah i think um oxfam and development finance international analyzed that three quarters of all countries were planning to make further cuts to public spending over the next 5 years so it's it just feels like we're working with less um there's less support there's less um stability there's less um the security yeah. i think that's the thing is it is that security it's like uh, you're feeling like hey things are not uh, 
steady. Yeah, yeah it, it feels a bit unstable. And I think also, if we look at the history, there has been very dangerous times when internationally, mm. when when there has been recessions, right? In around yes. that time, there's been wars, you know. Well, so it's one of the big causes of, of many wars, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so um, scary times ahead. When there's discontent amongst people, uh, that's what usually causes yeah. uprising, and that's where it's it's also, you know, with uh, there's so many countries actually we don't even realize it. Sometimes there there are so many countries in conflict yeah. as of Already, today, yeah. right? Yeah. And throw in the fact that people, you know, I don't I don't want to um, what's it called make it uh, trivial, but yeah. like think of it as simple as how you react to something when you're hungry. Right, when as you're not hungry, and mm-hmm. think about it, like people are not maybe not physically all starving, or but like financially starving, mm-hmm. they're less likely to be tolerant of each other. Mm-hmm. You know, there's less. Ask people like five years ago, like should we give international aid? Most people would be like yes. Probably ask people now, they'll be like no, no, yeah, like we need it, yeah, like keep it here. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is um, something that is across the world, and it's a theme across mm-hmm. the world that we need to kind of be aware of yeah exactly and I think that's a good question to ask all of our listeners as well I mean if you're listening and if you think that you know we, we have obviously we're going through a financial crisis a recession um, here in the UK for example and similarly in other countries as well so do you think that at that time your country needs to focus on on on, on helping out their own people rather than sending aid in the billions, you know, to other countries. I mean, that's the question. Do you think that's morally right? Do you think that's the right approach? Or do you think that, hang on a minute, I think that's a wrong and selfish idea. Maybe this is the time where people more than ever need help. So we yeah. should continue that and sacrifice a little bit. However, that's the question for for our listeners. Do give us a call if you are interested in um, letting us know what you think about this zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number. You can also tweet at Voice of Islam uh, UK if you wish to send send us your tweets. Also, don't forget you can also engage with all our uh, topics that are discussed here on Instagram Voice of Islam UK again. Now, um, Fahim, just a, a couple of things. Um, when it comes to the uh, international aid, usually the UK has been the third largest donor to the Global Fund, which provides two-thirds of all international financing for for different programs such as uh, malaria, uh, uh, to combat malaria and and for other diseases, also for TB. Yeah. and that obviously is something that might get affected, isn't it? When the aid kind of definitely, stops. and so I'm going to answer what you said personally <laughs> because um, for me personally, I think guided by my faith, I feel like you don't stop giving just because you're in strife. Because you know, I have faith that if I do the right thing, caring about others, then I will be looked after. That's my personal view, and I think that you know, ultimately. It's it's tough. I know that, but it comes down to prioritization, right? If you mm. always put yourself first, you will live in a world where not many other people will be happy, right? And ultimately, you, if you want to live in a good society, you need to care about each other. Yeah. And I think that that's 
and and you know these like we were saying earlier it's this economic strife that causes countries to have wars that causes uprisings civil wars and no one wants to live in that like mm. no one i don't think there are, there are very few people in this world that want to be involved in a war yeah. of any sort exactly and so yeah i've personally i would continue it i understand that there may need to be a bit of a reallocation of resources dependent on time but i don't think that like the tap should completely close mm. and i think that and i think it's an interesting take on this because one thing we we might also need to look at is that is international aid the problem of our financial exactly. issues or is it our policies and where our general spending has gone wrong i mean yes. that's something that you know that is we consider <laughs> is it like cause that's yeah. that's what i say like you know it maybe there's a reallocation maybe yeah. we shouldn't be spending so much on one industry or, yeah. or and not another or um and then on the flip side uh, you just maybe think of it is is the international aid getting where it needs yes, to get yes exactly that's the other thing exactly. right is it actually making the impact because then if it is being sent and then some dictator or whatever is 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 Lost like, in corruption like yeah, or something lo- that yeah. you know it's it's taken or monopolized over there yeah. um does that then it could be a waste of money yeah. right yeah. so i think that that's where um again an islamic principle of of zakat where you know the circulation of money mm. and the free flow of money i think us being able to track it these days and understand that better is really important so i think that yeah for me there's a lot of questions to be asked i don't think it's a simple yes or no yeah. um and yeah i'm sure we'll de- delve into it deeper with our guests as well absolutely absolutely 02086877878 is the number to call uh, if you are interested you can check out our contact details on our website voiceofislam.co.uk as well uh let's uh, go to our first guest for today's show we have uh, tamseen barton with us the chief commissioner for the independent commission for aid Uh good afternoon peace be upon you welcome to the uh, drive time show here on Voice of Islam Tamsin Hello and thank you for having me on this show Thank you very much Um I mean we can start off by by asking you to to kind of let us know a little bit of the work that the independent commission for aid does and uh then and also why it's important to monitor how you know our aid is is spent and distributed Yeah, thank you. So the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, we call it ICAI mm-hmm. for short, uh is responsible for scrutinizing how the UK's development assistance is spent. You know, you were just uh talking just now about whether there's a risk that some of it's misused, and that was the thinking behind setting up a completely independent body that couldn't be influenced directly by governments. because uh, traditionally evaluation would have been done within the ministries that were involved in distributing aid so we're independent and our independence is guaranteed by the british parliament so we report to the committee the select committee on development about whether uk aid is achieving impact for the people it's meant to help and whether it's providing good value for money for the uk taxpayer and the way we do this is we produce evidence based reports on all aspects of uk aid whichever government department is is using money that's classified as aid uh and we make recommendations at the end of our of our sort of major reports and we communicate our findings and then government is invited by the committee to answer 
our findings and recommendations. And then we, we follow that up until we're satisfied that they're, you know, they're doing what we suggest. So that's basically how we work. Right, and um, just a quick follow-up. How often does that happen? How, do, how often do these reviews happen? So we probably do about eight uh, reports in a year. So most of our reviews are what we call full reviews. So they, they can take a year or sometimes even more to do. They involve very thorough work, including in-depth consultation with people expected to benefit, uh, visits to countries, uh, consultation of, for example, our review looking at Afghanistan. I think we looked at 6,000 documents, wow. uh, very wide range of interviews. So they're pretty thorough. Yeah. And we make sure that our reports are based on the latest evidence. So we'll always do a literature review to to make sure we're up to date on what findings are as to the best way to do things. Uh, but today, the, the, the report we're going to discuss is, is a shorter one. It's not taken a year. Uh, it only took us about two and a half months in that case. But I can explain more about that. Okay. I mean, let, let's get to that report. I mean, what what are the findings of, of that? And uh, and and um, what, what does it talk about? So it, this report was asked for by the committee, mm-hmm. the, the, the committee, Select Committee on International Development. And they were interested in hearing you know, in more depth about what the fund does and how it's performing by September when we published it. And that was because September is was the moment uh, where they were looking to raise more funds, uh, which is what they do every three years. That's part of the way this fund functions. So they bring in funds for a three-year cycle and then they distribute them. So that's why the committee wanted to know what exactly is this fund doing and you know, how well is it doing it? And what it is, is it, it explains in our note that the fund is an international partnership, uh, which was set up in 2002. The UK was a founding member. At that time, the biggest pandemics were AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. And mm-hmm. the aim was, if we work together as opposed to, you know, separately and in an uncoordinated way, we should be able to eliminate these diseases. And at the moment, they have the goal of eliminating them by 2030. And it's generated more than $4 billion a year to run programs and to make all the procurement, for example, of drugs and equipment cheaper by procuring uh, in a pooled way. Um, You can imagine how much money it saves. So there's 100 countries where they're distributing this aid. That's a big purchasing power compared to one country. And so part of the benefit of this setup is it involves the private sector and reduces prices for poorer countries, which otherwise couldn't afford those drugs and equipment. So the the fund reports that it saved 50 million lives. Now we can't, you know, we couldn't directly verify every one of those, but from what we know, that's very plausible. We've looked at the reports of a lot of independent bodies that have looked at the fund. And just let me give you one example of what that means. So one example that they give, uh, we've put in our notes is in Malawi, mm. since 2002, when the fund was set up, two-thirds of the increase in life expectancy, which went from 46 to 65 uh, by 2019, two-thirds of that can be attributed to resources provided by the Global Fund, and that's incredible. Mm. I visited Malawi in something like 2003 on a government review, and my counterpart from Malawi, 
who worked with me during the two weeks I was doing the review, a few days after I got back, I learned that he had died. And I was told informally that he probably had died of AIDS. That was someone highly educated, making a massive contribution to government. Mm. Uh, and one of so many people who died way too young. I mean, he was hardly over 40. So that you can imagine the impact of a country, a relatively small country like Malawi, and that mm. is to be seen in many more countries. As I mentioned, there are, there are a hundred of them, but Malawi is a particularly poor one where mm. the life expectancy was particularly low yeah. before. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, the, but the good, this, is, this is in 2003. Mm. So the, what we can see is by raising this much money and organizing this partnership, both with the private sector and then at country level, through the national government and other civil society organizations that contribute to health, then they've used the money better than it could be done before. Mm. So generally, it's, it's seen as pretty effective as an organization. It doesn't actually itself have its own staff at ground level. It funnels the money to local experts, national governments, if you see what I mean. Mm. Uh, but it does it in reducing the cost to them. So right. generally speaking, we would agree with the assessments that it's it's been pretty successful and that they've made a major contribution to tackling AIDS, TB and malaria in the 20 years they've been going. Mm. And that's obviously crucial, isn't it? I mean, we, we see how much of a difference it can make. Mm. But again, ensuring that the aid really trickles down and, and goes to those who need it, um, mm. how, how do... How, what kind of uh, system is in place, perhaps, uh, yeah. if I put that question to you, in terms of, yeah. like, you know, making sure that the international aid actually does end up helping people and does not just, you know, do, does not, um, you know, cor- get corrupted on the way or, you know, yeah. uh, fall into the wrong hands? Yeah, that, that's absolutely the right question. In fact, one of the contributions that the UK has made, apart from the, the money that it's provided, so the UK has provided... 4.18 billion up to now but one of the specific areas where it contributed was through the uh, governance of the fund so part of the way it's organized is they have a, an audit committee which is there really to make sure that there are the highest standards of audit as i mentioned they don't operate at the country level themselves mm-hmm. so in our note we discuss examples of kenya and nigeria and in both those places it was local equivalents of our national audit office here which as you'll know in relation to uk's um covid procurement found some you know questions to ask if you like so in kenya and nigeria also the national um, inspectors general or auditors also found problems and basically you know any any misuse had to be paid back so the the uk had a role at the sort of top level of governance to help ensure that they had the best expertise, if you like, in how they check for corruption or misuse of funds. So, you know, it's not that you can always and everywhere prevent any misuse of funds, but the important thing is to be able to find it out and deal with it and make sure that the organisations that deal with it, like the equivalents of our National Audit Office, are well enough resourced and enabled to do their work so that any irregularities can be out. Right, and Tamsin, as we were mentioning earlier, I'm not sure if you heard, but um, that a lot of people say that aid uh, should be reduced or, or 
um, mm. because of the current economic crisis in in the UK itself. What's what's your opinion on that? Well, I, I, I'm not going to give you my personal opinion because mm-hmm. I'm you know I'm on the program <laughs> as course. the um, independent commission, and we don't take a view on mm-hmm. how much aid there should be. Uh, I think it's actually appropriate more to consider, you know, what difference it makes, yeah. just like I've given you examples of what difference it will make. And then it's up to the people that this country elects, you mm-hmm. know, our MPs who then, you know, get elected into government, become ministers to decide what the priorities are. But what we do do is if the government has said that it wants to do something, mm-hmm. then we at least set out uh, for the committee, you know, have they done this or not? Yeah. Uh, and certainly this government, you know, back in, in 2019, it made it part of its manifesto that it was going to contribute aid to end preventable deaths, in particular of mothers and young children. Hmm. And it's it specifically mentioned in its policy since, like it's published an international development strategy, that the Global Fund is part of that. Yep. Um, and it has recently reiterated that they do intend to commit funds to the Global Fund and they see it as a key instrument for that purpose. However, you know, we published it in September because that was expected to be the sort of last minute for them to contribute, but so far they haven't. So oh. on this particular, in this particular case, they are obviously having some challenge finding, you know, as much money as they might like to give. And that's because of a lot of other pressures on the aid budget. Mm. So we wouldn't say to the government, you should be spending money on this and not on that. Yeah. But we will say, as we have with this, this looks to us to be well-organized and good value for money, and it appears to fit with the objectives you set yourself. So, yeah. you know, they can work out their own conclusions from that. Now, you might have heard that the aid budget is under pressure at the moment. In particular, there's been coverage in recent days. A lot of it is being spent in the UK yeah. because the aid budget also contributes to the first year of costs of some people who are seeking asylum or who are refugees. And that's one of the reasons that it's quite challenging in view of the numbers that have been arriving here, not only from Ukraine, but uh, from from elsewhere as well, which have have called on a reduced aid budget because the decision was made um, to reduce the percentage of national income, which, you know, is not an absolute figure. It depends from year to year how well the economy is doing. And in recognition that when the economy is doing badly, then you probably, you know, can't afford as much. Then it, it was expected to shrink uh, in that context, but it was reduced even further because our economy did shrink at the time of COVID uh, from 0.7 to 0.5. So there's less to go round, and so that's one reason it's difficult for the government to find the money. But they're still saying that they will provide money for this. They obviously do regard it as a priority. So. Uh, you know, remains to be seen whether they'll do that. But they, as you might know, they've got a um, budget announcement expected on the 17th of November. So probably now they wouldn't say whether they're going to contribute to this or not until after the, you know, the rest of the decisions have been made about how the how government spending will go. Mm. All right, let's see how that happens in the future. Tamzin, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us, Chief Commissioner of the Independent Commission for Aid. Uh, appreciate you taking out time. Uh, it was lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. All right. Have a great evening. 0208-687-7878 is the number if you wish to speak to us on uh, international aid, which is our current discussion topic um, in this hour. 
do you think that the UK should reduce or altogether uh, stop the international aid for temporarily because of the financial crisis? Um, we're going to um, speak to our next uh, guests very uh, soon as well. Uh, but before we do that, uh, just a quick uh, mention, obviously, that the, um, the the Islamic teaching and Islam, as we, we, we looked at in the beginning as well, from the verse of the Holy Quran, that uh, where the question comes that how should, should you spend your wealth, mm. um, then Allah the Almighty has said, whatever good and abundant wealth you spend should be for parents and near relatives and orphans and the needy and the wayfarer. And whatever good you do, surely Allah knows it perfectly well so spending in the way of Allah or spending for good causes for charity is very central to Islam like you know in everything you would see that there's so much emphasis on charity on um, on looking after those people around you whether it's your relatives obviously starts with that with your parents your family your your, your relatives your neighbors but then also that transcends into international relationships as well that internationally as well your uh, your neighboring countries, maybe they looking looking after each other, cooperation, helping each other out. As, and as human beings, Islam, you know, uh, reminds us that we should not um, think about other people as other people, rather think about everyone as brothers and sisters, and that we should, as a society, um, if if we have wealth, you know, then then we should try to share that with other people and help them also get to a good standard because the less inequality you have the the better the world is going yeah. to be but look at look at what's happening today yep. you know in we have some countries who, who where people barely can afford anything they they don't know if they're going to get food hmm. um the next day right um but in in some countries there's so much wealth that people are avoiding paying tax and all that so the inequality is, is to such a scale now that it only creates frictions yeah. uh, in the world, conflicts, and, and ultimately wars as well, which we obviously want to which avoid. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go to our next guest. Uh, we have uh, with us uh, Dr. James, um, Dr. James uh, Tibanderana, uh, who is joining us, Chief Executive of uh, Malaria Consortium. Um, good afternoon, Dr. James. Thank you very much for joining. Uh, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon um, and um, greetings to all your viewers and listeners. Thank you very much. Um, what, uh, um, what is it that your organization focus on? Uh, if you can tell our listeners a little bit more about Malaria Consortium uh, and, and, um, and, and the work that is being done um, to help people uh, you know, suffering from malaria. Thank you very much. Um, Malaria Consortium is a UK-registered charity. It's a technical organization and it covers um, a global portfolio. Um, it will be 20 years next year. Um, um, we started in 2003 and our history really originated from the academic um, um, arena um, because it was a collaboration between the Liverpool School of Hygiene and the London School of Tropical Medicine. Um, and then they set off a consultancy firm, which then became a UK-registered charity in 2003. Yeah. Our mission is to save lives and improve health in Africa and Asia um, through evidence-based programs that combat communicable diseases, 
um, especially malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia, and malnutrition. And what is also very important to us is that we would like to promote universal health coverage. Um, within malaria, our work covers all aspects of malaria, the prevention of malaria, the diagnosis of malaria, its treatment, and we do research, we carry out evaluations, we implement projects, and we support um, governments in their policy development. We have offices in eight countries in Africa, three countries in Southeast Asia, we have an office in the US and one in the UK. And we cover other countries as well where we may have particular projects and we work through um, partners. So that would be a broad um, overview of what Malaria Consortium does. Mm. Okay, perfect. And um, what has digital technology had on the support you provide for those suffering, particularly in remote areas? It's, um, digital technology is a very important, um, I would say, um, tool that we add to some of our programs. I'll give you an example. Um, identifying communities that are very hard to reach is not something that happens, um, you know, coincidentally. You actually have to identify those communities because them being hard to reach sometimes means that they are not sort of accessing services or they are not providing data into the health system. So either through community um, engagement or by using technology that allows you to understand the kind of barriers that may be limiting communities from reaching health services or like in a country like Mozambique where we have a tool which we call Upscale which is a platform on a phone that community health workers are able to use to collect data and to report that data. And when you put that into spatial maps, you are able to identify that there are particular locations where community health workers are reaching and there are com locations where community health workers are not reaching. And so that creates hotspots that you can then use other methods to reach to. So identifying those hard to reach communities reporting and um, sort of collecting and reporting data is something that we've also been able to use digital technologies um, in Uganda, in um, Mozambique. Our community health workers, even in very remote settings, are able to provide some information in terms of the number of malaria cases as well as the test, whether the test results are positive or negative. And then I would say one important element for hard-to-reach communities is that these tools help us to ensure that the supply of medicines or um, um, commodities that are very vital for service delivery are provided in a timely manner. So if a community health worker in a hard-to-reach environment runs out of medicines with the technology, they are able to report that. But the technology itself also has inbuilt mechanisms that can tell that if one has 10 treatments and you've seen six children, you have four left. And so that triggers a response that goes into the health system that that community health worker needs a resupply of medicines. And this is very important because sometimes you may have a, a sort of a plan that you see 10 children and something happens and suddenly there's been an outbreak and the community health worker has seen 10 children in a very short span of time. So being able to have that information in real time 
or near real time enables the health system to be able to respond. And then I think something which is very important for community health workers or any health worker who's living in hard to reach environments is the ability to be able to communicate with their peers and communicate with others. Hmm. So those would be some examples of how these technologies are critical in hard to reach locations. Yeah, I think that technology is is improving all the time, isn't it? It's going to make a crucial difference. I mean, I wanted to ask you a question, maybe a little bit out of uh, you know uh, the box here, and yeah. feel free to 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 say no if you don't want to answer this question. Yeah. But some people have asked this question that you know COVID came and and very quickly you know, well fairly quickly people were able to produce a vaccine to 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 completely sort of you know. Um, help stop um, the the ill effects of the worst effects of of COVID. How comes all these years we haven't been able to find you know some sort of vaccine for the malaria? Is it because you know not enough funding has gone into it, or it's not been a priority? What's your view on that? It's not. I would say it's multifactorial. Um, the first thing to to really grasp is that malaria is a parasite is more complex than a virus okay. because the, the the surface of the malaria parasite which we would call antigens is so diverse and as it goes through its stages within its life cycle in the human host those antigens change so really finding a vaccine for covid is probably easier than finding a vaccine for malaria so from the immunological perspective, from the technology perspective, we're talking of two different types of vaccines. So that's where I'll, uh, I'll start off. And then I think the, the, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, really hit us you know, so hard and hit across every aspect of the world that the, the social need, the economic need, the human instinct to react was enormous. Malaria is, is a disease that has been with us for, you know, almost, at least a century. Um, we know that, you know, it's been around for a long time. And there's almost a sense um, over time that we, I think, globally and countries like Uganda, we've normalized ourselves to accepting that it's a disease that we shall live with and with difficult to eliminate. So I think there's a mindset and then there's also the fact that we are probably more accepting of malaria than we would be of COVID that came and literally spread globally in such a short time and threatened everybody, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether in the US, whether you're in Africa, COVID threatened you. Yeah. The many countries that had malaria in the past, like in the US or in Europe, have managed to eliminate malaria. And right now, the burden of malaria is largely in Africa and some parts of Asia. Mm. So I think the, the, the risk imperative to react, I would say, is probably um, less than it has been for COVID. And then there's the funding. For us to get the right type of vaccine and do the research really requires a substantial amount of funding and um, looking at the picture for the long haul, because mm. various things are being tried, they fail. And, you know, each time you try and fail, don't give up, keep trying again. 
because we've had several vaccines in the past that haven't worked well. And even the vaccines that we currently have are good, but they are not perfect. And therefore, we have to continue to work harder and using technology. Mm. The other thing I would say is that technology itself advances. So the capabilities we have now, for example, with the mRNA vaccines for COVID, are sort of technologies that we didn't have 30, 40 years ago. So as technology advances, the capacity for scientists to then use that technology to tackle more complex diseases, I think also improves. So things have changed. And I'm glad to say that globally, there is an awareness and there is a need and an interest in eliminating malaria. And I think that's something that if we can all sort of rally around that call and come at malaria as a disease that shouldn't um, challenge us um, forever, and that if possible, this is something we need to be able to erad- sort of eliminate and probably eradicate in our generation or at most in the next generation. Hmm. And I think technology will be providing us those tools, but we just have to continue to advocate, you know, like the way you're discussing, you know, the need for charitable causes and support is that we really need to be in this for the long haul and think about the the value of a world without malaria. And maybe I'll just stress to you and to, to, to your listeners that whereas we look at malaria from the disease, malaria also holds back economies. Hmm. So not only is there a disease imperative for better health, there's also an economic imperative that if we can eliminate malaria, some of the economies that have been held back by malaria will be able to advance sort of faster than they are doing currently. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, I think lastly, uh, the question that we could ask you about the um the the UK uh, aid and and could we do more to to help uh, help help uh, in this respect of of uh, combating diseases uh, such as malaria in developing countries do we do we have an obligation do we have a responsibility in that respect yes we do have a responsibility I would say everybody because the world is now a smaller space it's, and I think COVID has shown us that you know, a risk in one country becomes a risk in another country quite quickly. But I think, you know, as human beings, the the social imperative that we're healthier, we're wealthier as a globe, I think is something that we should all um, ascribe to. So take, for example, um, the fact that the UK does need to make its pledge to the Global Fund, because the Global Fund is one of the major mechanisms that countries in Africa and Asia that are at risk of malaria are able to access, you know, um, grants to be able to sort of deliver malaria interventions at scale. There are other funding streams. There's funding from the U.S. government. There's funding from other organizations. But I think when you bring these funding streams together, they make a a more impactful um, um, combination that than just having one stream on its own. So I think 
the UK does need to make a pledge to the Global Fund because the Global Fund is an important funding source. Mm. I would also say that the UK as well should continue to fund um, what are called bilateral programs. So a country like Nigeria that has the highest number of malaria cases would benefit from a program that the UK is funding that can complement what the Global Fund is doing, what the US government is doing. And uniquely, because you know the UK government inherently has had this um, sort of long-term perspective to programs, health system strengthening to programs, is something that is a very important addition to what other funders are doing. And then research. The academic institutes in, in, in the UK, I mean, we've seen them bring out vaccines against COVID. They're working on malaria vaccines. There's drugs they're working on. And the UK continuing to ensure that, you know, those initiatives are functioning, have the research um, funding they require, because those are the next generation of tools that will help us to, one, eliminate malaria, but also eradicate it off the face of the earth so that it's something that remains in a laboratory somewhere and we can you know, talk about malaria in the past. And then the last thing I would say is that the UK needs to continue being an advocate for the mitigation of climate change. Mm. Climate change, climate variability, make it you know, make it more difficult and unpredictable in how we control diseases that are linked to climate like malaria. And so being able to mitigate climate change will also contribute to the fact that we can then have predictable um, measures to eliminate malaria um, and eradicate it from the globe. So okay. those would be some examples. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much, Dr. James, for uh, speaking to us. It was uh, great talking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, too. 0208-687-7878 is uh, the number uh, we're speaking about international aid, and currently we're talking about um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the diseases, the, the very serious uh, and uh, easily spread uh, diseases in the world. Um, we're going to talk about another one, which is tuberculosis, which is infecting um, a lot of people uh, worldwide. Um, actually, there is a there's a recent report by the World Health Organization, which says that the number of people infected with tuberculosis has increased worldwide. The United Nations Health Agency said more than 10 million people around the world became sick with tuberculosis in 2021. Uh, and about 1.6 million people also died, the World Health Organization has reported. Uh, we're going to speak to Paul Sommerfield from the Tuberculosis uh, Europe, Europe Coalition, TB Europe uh, Coalition. Uh, Paul, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Um, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much. Um, Paul, with with modern advancement in health uh, care and technology, as we were speaking about earlier, um, how important is the issue to tackle, um, you know, the, which which uh, which is uh, in regards to tuberculosis, as, as I mentioned, obviously, that uh, uh, there, there's a report of, of uh, more people um, being infected according to the worldwide uh, the world health organization sorry 
yes, I think not enough people understand that tuberculosis after COVID is the next most important cause of death from infectious diseases. And uh, it is, and yet it is a disease which not enough energy is put towards to deal with. It doesn't get enough political priority and funding. Um, so that, um, you know, TB is, it, everybody's got, in a sense, used to it. It's been with us for generations. It's not a new sudden disease like COVID. Um, but you asked uh, the previous speaker, I think, uh, about uh, how come we managed to get find a vaccine against COVID um, within nine months of it, it appearing. And here we are this year celebrating, if that's the right word, the development of the not very good vaccine, BCG, against TB, which has been around for 100 years. Mm -hmm. But yet we know it's not terribly good. It's not very effective. Um, and yet not nearly enough energy has been put in to find alternatives. Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, so so, so do, you, do you generally think that it's a it's a issue of priority because it's it's something that doesn't affect people living in. I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but it does sound like, you know, mm. if, if it's not impacting us, then we don't need to, you know. Focus on, focus on that too much. I, I'm afraid that's entirely true. That the the issue is that tuberculosis today is essentially a disease of poverty. It's a disease of relatively poor countries. Um, you know, there is tuberculosis anywhere in the world, practically. But you know, in this country, we have may, even even here in Britain, we have maybe about. 6,000 cases a year, um, but that pales into insignificance compared to, as you mentioned in your opening remarks a moment ago, some 10 million cases around the world. Mm. And when we're talking these diseases, we are talking millions of people. This is not just the occasional person down the road. This is many millions of people. And uh, you know, and and uh, and that's particularly serious in uh, in in a lot of countries across the, uh, uh, you know, across the poorer parts of the world. So uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America. Right. And what impact will the Global Fund have on helping to deal with conditions like tuberculosis? Uh, it's not so much will, but does. I mean, the Global Fund has been absolutely crucial since its foundation about 20 years ago. It has become the largest source of funding um, of other than uh, local health services. It has become the major source of funding, um, particularly in TB, um, as well as HIV and malaria. Um, so that as far as TB is, tuberculosis is concerned, last year, because of the Global Fund, something like 5 million people were treated for tuberculosis with funds derived from the Global Fund. And if that, that money were not there, it would be really, really serious. There would be many more deaths. And also last year should be mentioned, last year in 2020 and, 20 and 21, 
Um, we also saw a downturn in the effectiveness of TB services because of COVID. That because a lot of energy and effort had to go into COVID, um, a lot of TB services were less energetic than they had been. Um, and so actually rather less number of people were diagnosed. And that wasn't because there was less disease, but because health services were focused more on COVID. Okay. And and finally, um, I wanted to ask you, I was, I was reading somewhere that... Uh, uh, there is actually some um, some some uh, work going into trying to uh, improve uh, the 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 vaccine for TB. Uh, have you have you got any knowledge of that? I mean, is there any? Well, yes, no. There, there 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 is in fact quite a lot of work going on, but it is um, it, it it is you know I've been involved in tuberculosis activity for over twenty years. And we always seem to be on the verge of a great discovery with, 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 a, with, a, with new vaccine or, or improved versions of BCG. Um, and, you know, at the moment, we, ha- that, that, that we are optimistic. There have been some, some useful developments. Um, and indeed, some of the scientific developments due to the search for a COVID vaccine are having spin-offs for a search for a tuberculosis vaccine. Um, but it still means that any new vaccine, which would be significantly better than BCG, we are looking at something still that would, must be at least 10 years away before it could you could be seeing it actually implemented and used. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much, uh, Paul, for joining us. It was great talking to you, and uh, thank you very much for... Uh, giving us your uh, time today. I, I wonder if I might very briefly, though, say that the theme has been also the Global Fund, mm-hmm. and it really is important at the moment that if any of your listeners are in a position to encourage, particularly their Conservative members of Parliament, to tell the government, to encourage the government to be generous in their pledge to the Global Fund. We're waiting for a decision from them any day now. And we fear that because of the current financial problems, they will be tempted to row back on the amount of money they have been giving to the Global Fund, rather than, like most of the G7 countries, increasing their support by 30% in order to overcome the problems that arose during covid and in order um, to really accelerate the whole work against TB, HIV and malaria. Okay. Well, um, I hope they are listening to the show today, Paul, because God help us, it does not look very good. But uh, thank you very much, uh, nevertheless, for uh, joining us. And I think you you, uh, really um, uh, highlighted, you know, very, very important points. So we really appreciate that. And uh, we hope and we pray that we are able to, as humankind, help each other, regardless of... uh, background or um, status. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. No problem. 0208-687-7878 is the number to call. You can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK. We're coming up towards the news uh, very shortly and we're going to speak to another guest as well, uh, but uh, we're going we're gonna, to you know, speak to our guest uh, after the news so we have enough time to to look at um, you know some of the other aspects that are really important as well, we're going to talk about AIDS uh, as well. You know, 
Um, that's a, a disease that is affecting many people and it's very important to look yeah. at the work that goes into that for him, isn't it? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think In order that to combat it. I mean. Definitely. I think that um, we're not done with this subject yet. So let's we'll speak to our next guest and find out a little bit more just after the news. Yep, we're going towards the news. Join us after the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Voice of Islam radio station. Uh, you were listening to the Drive Time Show 4 to 6 p.m. Monday to Friday. We were talking about uh, international aid uh, and the importance of, um, of uh, you know, helping, the, others, helping right? others. Yes, exactly. And I think just to wrap it up now as we are moving on to our second topic, I think Islam as a religion teaches us to help those in need regardless of um of of you know Creed, who they color, are yes no. of 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 whatever background they are and also at times if you are struggling yourself you should still try to sacrifice and help other people that's also something that Islam teaches i mean i give you an example that there are so many examples from the life of the holy prophet of islam prophet muhammad peace and blessings for be upon him but look there's an example of meccans of of uh, mm. those people living in Mecca, the very people who were the enemies of Prophet Muhammad and uh, the Muslims, um, and they had actually driven them out of of Mecca. Yeah. But one year, I think it, there was famine in Mecca, and they didn't have any uh, they didn't have any uh, crop or food yeah. to to live on already. And they came to the Prophet and said that you know pray for us that uh, <laughs> they they still <laughs> knew that this person has some connection with God, you know, and yeah. that this. Uh, it's remarkable but they they as uh, the enemies that that would look at any time to cause damage to the prophet or the muslims yeah. still when there was famine they came to the prophet and said pray for us that things get easy for us and you know the prophet not only prayed but he also gave them provisions yeah. right so that shows that you know uh, whatever this whatever yeah I and mean, i think there's a verse of the holy quran that talks about this as well that you help people only because you want to you know, please Allah the Almighty, who's the yeah. creator, who ultimately all wealth and resources are in the hands of God. He is yeah. the one who's maybe, you know, we're lucky and we're we're fortunate that God has given us. So being lucky and being fortunate doesn't mean that we stop sacrificing and try to help other people. Definitely. I think that that's, that's one of the things that we learned in that show is that, you know, I get it. I understand that things are tough and yeah. times are tough, but ultimately you know i think we can we can always find something to help and we can find somewhere to help yeah, so exactly and i remember also another instance where the the prophet um you know there the, there were uh, people who there was uh, st- people were starving there was a famine and uh, and uh, you know somebody brought food and the prophet you know could have easily just eaten it himself because he he had been fasting and as well mm. he didn't have food but he made sure that other people got it. So, you know, he gave it to other people. 
So again, that's something that uh, you know Islam encourages, and um, that only you know gives um, blessings to 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 yourself as a human being when you make those sacrifices. It doesn't go to waste. Um, you know, Allah the Almighty always blesses, and as as I said in the beginning that. Islam is a religion that uh, wants to create more equal society where yeah. where everybody is, you know, uh, looked after. Not that you know, one part of the world is extremely rich and the other part of the world doesn't have a roof over its head of food. So this is, um, I think, the solution for today's problems is actually these Islamic teachings that we we are talking about. Hundred percent. But now, Fahim, we're gonna go to something uh, a bit different. Yes. Uh, something a bit uh, I, I think it's always de- depressing or just difficult to talk yeah, about I think, I think that um, you know uh, mass shootings and the role of gun control mm. um, they, it's it's something that has plagued the news for a long time uh, you hear about it often uh, you often see very sad situations based on it and um, yeah there, there's a massive correlation actually between poor gun laws and mass shootings and that's what we kind of want to discuss that while recently the Thai Prime Minister tightened gun control after a recent mass killing in Bangkok US US state gun laws have become more permissive in recent decades and a growing divide in the in rates of mass shootings appears to be emerging between restrictive and permissive states so I think that automatically you can see that some countries are restricting and, and, and it's it's actually reducing mass shootings and some are being a bit more open with it, like mm. the US, and it's starting to increase. And uh, guns are now leading the, co- the leading cause of death among young people in the US, replacing car accidents since 2020. Mm. Now let that sink in. Like, it's, it's the leading cause of death and... Like, you know, if, if car accidents was the leading cause, I'm sure they'd you'd do everything to restrict the opportunity yeah. for a car accident, mm. right? But it's not the same with, with guns. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, if there's car accidents where, you know, a, 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 a concern here as well. I mean, worldwide, yeah. there's a concern, of obviously, course. right? I mean, here in the UK, also, there was a concern. I remember they put the speed, speed limit down, right? They, mm. they brought it down from... You know, 30, 30 to 20. To 20. Yeah. So you, you do something about it. But in in this case, as you mentioned in the yeah. US, it doesn't seem like there's... Uh, there's the pe- people are too much worried about their, you know, their their right to bear arms as yeah. well. Uh, and I, uh, I think it's just... Uh, it, uh, you know, I've been to U- USA a couple of times and, and it's it's very, very easy for somebody to just acquire a gun. Yeah. You know, it's it's very, very easy. Sometimes you does it, you don't even need to even show any uh, identification yeah, or, yeah. or wow. you know look even if you have to show your identification you show it and you buy a gun it co- shouldn't be that easy but uh, but yeah. it is that easy and it's scary that because scary. you don't know who you know is is in one what state of mind, mind yeah. that they have a gun but they have a gun and once you have a gun you have a you have a potential uh, you know killer so yeah. it is really scary um but um, you know, American gun culture stems in part from its colonial history, revolutionary roots, and the Second Amendment, which states a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people 
to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So those people, obviously, the states uh, really, you know, use this to 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 make sure that no policies or nothing, yeah. you know, gets in the way of weakening this uh, uh, Second Amendment right that they, uh, you know, believe needs to be protected at all cost. Um, and and from time to time we see again school shootings, yeah. uh, you know, shootings of other events or things like that happen and, and then people say oh, we need to do something about it but then nothing is done protect the rights not the people huh? yeah exactly mm. exactly somebody said that you know a, a human life is less protected than than, than a gun mm. which is in <laughs> many ways true Islam however um, you know lays the foundation for peace uh, specifically promoting the rights of people advising kindness towards uh, one's brother and mankind um, Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran and when it is said to them create not disorder on the earth they say we are only promoters of peace beware it is surely they who create disorder but they do not perceive it chapter 2 verse 12 to 13 so um, we're discussing the gun violence um, and gun laws in the United States uh, and, and mass shootings now happening with regularity um, we have uh, looked at uh, school massacres as well. Um, we have uh, looked at uh, scarred families uh, who have lost their children uh, because of, you know, gun violence. Um, we have looked at gun violence and, yeah. and also the, the black uh, community also being, uh, you know, targeted. And, um, and and again, I think we've, we've talked about it a couple of times on Voice of Islam over the years. Um and, and I don't, I don't think just over the years, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite common. Quite if you think of it, because yeah. it's circulating in the news, that it's it's a topic that we're constantly having to discuss, which yeah. is a shame, like with very little or no reform, right? Yeah. Um, so you can get in touch with us uh, through phone or through calling through calling us or um, on um, on on Twitter zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet at uh, Voice of Islam UK if you wish to send in your comments. Uh, let's speak to our first guest. We have Dr. Uh, Sadaf Jaffer with us, who is uh, Assemblywoman uh, State Representative from New Jersey. She's actually the first Asian American woman and the first Muslim American to be sworn into the New Jersey General Assembly. So that's quite special. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sadaf is with us. So thank you very much for your time. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show here on Voice of Islam radio station. Welcome, Islam. Good to join you. Thank you very much. Um, what are your thoughts on the right to bear arms and its limitations, in, obviously, in view of the gun laws, the current gun laws in the United States? Sure, absolutely. I think that the principle is about you know, the right, and it's something that's, you know, very central to American culture is to have some some access to weaponry. But we know that there's always a balance between freedom and responsibility and when your freedoms are infringing on the rights of others. So there are certain weapons that we don't allow the general public to have. You know, we don't allow the general public to have, you know, tanks or military-grade weapons. So similarly, um, there had been a ban on assault uh, weapons for many years that expired, and then it led to the proliferation of these weapons. And so we see that we kind of constantly have to be balancing out the rights and the freedoms with 
our responsibility to protect the public. And I would say, particularly as the mother of a eight-year-old daughter, mm. the real concern is protecting our children. Mm. Right. And Dr. Jaffa, how should we try to lower the amount of gun-related deaths in the U.S.? Like, what what do you see as as potential solutions? Sure. Well, I think that you know we ought to have background checks. Um, there is a lot of discussion about age restrictions because um, a lot of the violence that we've seen, especially recently the mass shootings, including the one in Uvalde, Texas, uh, as well as the one in the supermarket in New York, that these were young men, you know, just 18 years old who bought these weapons right after their 18 birthdays. So there are attempts to think about whether we can raise the age to perhaps 21, um, more requirements for safety training, more requirements for safe storage of guns. Um, and so there's a lot of different legislation that we can enact. And I'm very proud that New Jersey actually has some of the most stringent gun, gun safety legislation. We continue to work on that. And that's the reason why we have some of the lowest levels of gun deaths mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's 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 interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, I wish, obviously, the rest of the states also could look at that re- positively and, and maybe see, okay, there must be a reason why there is the numbers are low there because, yeah. you know, there there are some good laws in place. Yeah. But, yeah, I see it seems like over the years, you know, it's been, it's, it's been a sticking issue between Republicans and Democrats. But I think what the President Biden, uh, uh, I, I don't know if, if I'm right, correct me if I'm wrong, but he did say that, you know, the, the Republicans and the Democrats should, should put their political, you know, uh, issues aside and work towards solving this issue. Uh, am, I, am I right? I mean, did he say something like that? I mean, certainly that yes. would make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I think that those efforts actually did bear fruit. The U.S. Congress was able to pass, uh, you know, gun safety legislation for the first time in 30 years. And that shows that it's reached the breaking point. I think that most Americans want to be able to go to the grocery store and be safe, want to be able to send their kids to school without worrying about, you know, people who shouldn't have access to weapons having access to weapons. So I do think that generally there is support amongst the public for these legislations. Unfortunately, elected officials don't always pay attention to what the public actually wants, but there's really great advocacy happening, and I think because of that, we are seeing, uh, you know, the ability to actually pass some legislation. Mm. T- tell us a little bit about the National Rifle Association. Many people here in the UK might not even know what what that means, but obviously, you know, we, we've looked into that, and obviously, mm. they really oppose some of these laws. Why why do they do that, and what power do they have? Yes, absolutely. So, I think traditionally it was just an association for people who owned uh, firearms and they would do safety trainings and things of that nature. But at some point, they became very, very affiliated with the gun manufacturers. And it's a big business. You know, people are making lots of money because of the sales of excessive numbers of weapons in the United States. And so they really want to stop any sort of limit, whether it's a limit on the type of weapon that's being sold, whether it's a limit on how much ammunition you can have. Obviously, they don't like the idea of raising the age uh, in terms of who can buy a weapon. So uh, unfortunately, sometimes these special interest groups are able to garner support both because of financial contributions, but also just because they're such a loud voice. And so now there, there's a lot of loud um, 
organizing and very productive organizing with organizations like Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense, Every Town for Gun Safety. Um, so especially because of all the tragedies that we've seen, I think that there is, we're seeing a response from gun safety organizations that are probably gaining more ground and have more support than an organization like the National Rifle Association. Right. And um, so should there be more specific requirements to obtain firearms? I know you've discussed it in a bit of detail. Yes, absolutely. I I think one of these uh, are red flag laws. So, um, you know, domestic violence, for example, American women are far more likely to be killed by uh, a partner than women in most other countries. Um, And so we need to make sure that people don't have a history of violent acts or don't have a history of domestic violence. And that's why things like making sure that there is licensing requirements, that people are not able to just walk away with huge numbers of weapons without any sort of background check, all of these things would make life much safer and would balance out, you know, what is a part of American culture, which is the right and, and legal norms, which is the right to bear arms with the safety that we, we really need to ensure for the vast majority of the population. Hmm. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask you was that many of these shooters that, that mm-hmm. you know, uh, commit uh, murders and, and do these mass shootings, they have no previous problems, no previous uh, history of uh, violence uh, right. in some times and also yeah. no mental health issues or at that time, obviously, yeah. before. They right. certainly has an issue if they did that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, right. they probably have a clean history. So so again, sure. you know, we, we cannot just rely on uh, on, 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 uh, on a... On a right. Yeah, right? Yeah, it's not going to solve, solve the, the problem, problem entirely. Yeah. It's one part of it. Um, and this is actually in the New Jersey legislature. There was quite a uh, vociferous debate on this when we raised the, a bill that I was one of the uh, co-sponsors on, which was to raise the age from 18 to 21. And, uh, you know, one of the Republican assembly members got up and started saying, you know, you're trying to infringe on the rights of law-abiding citizens. And just as you said, most of these people are law-abiding until they snap and they you know, commit this crime. And so the things that we can do is a, a large percentage of these crimes are done by mostly men between the ages of 18 and 21. And so just raising the age by a few years can make such an impact and save lives. Uh, reducing how, how, many, how much ammunition you can have, that also you know, has the ability having some limits on the types of weapons, because unless you really are trying to harm a mass number of people, there's no need for you to have a, a powerful weapon that can, um, that can shoot and, and injure and kill so many people at one time. So I think that there has to be a whole host of safety measures, and we are working on those things. Thankfully, as I said, in states like New Jersey, we're making progress, um, but I do wish we could make more progress at the federal level because there's only so much we can do on a state-by-state basis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you mentioned earlier about, you know, you having a daughter. And I, I remember I've, yes. I have a friend in, in U.S. as well, and he, he's he got two sons. And, and he was uh, telling me that he's even, you know, I think he's living in um, Philadelphia. And he said that um, he's even considering of homeschooling the children because he doesn't, Man. you know, he, he's, he's, he's scared of the environment mm. because Word. of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just 
really shows how how wide that you know affects uh, people, families, children. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I would mention is that though we hear about these school shootings and it's terrible, and no one should ever be killed or injured in school, children are actually much safer in, than the, in school than they are just out and about. So, you know, mass shootings are a small proportion of the actual numbers of injuries and, and deaths that we and fatalities that we see. So most fatalities and injuries that happen to children don't happen in school. And so we need to protect not only the schools, and it's not just because you're keeping them home from school, it won't mean that they're necessarily safe from gun violence. So we have to make sure that these protections and these gun safety regulations are in place across the board. Okay, perfect. Well, um, Dr. Sada, thank you so much. Uh, we wish you all the best um, for the good work that you're doing. And uh, thank you very much for joining Voice of Islam Radio. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. You can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK. I remember watching a, uh, uh, a journalist, I think it was, or... or I, I don't remember exactly what this person was representing, but he went to a National Rifle Association mm. conference or something. And uh, he obviously wanted to make a point and he stood up and, you know, in a sarcastic way, he said that, you know, you're doing a great job. You know, let's uh, send some more, um, you know, uh, thoughts and prayers to to the families who, you know, who, who have been affected because we do that really well. So, you know, in a, yeah. in a sarcastic way, he was saying to them, that you know, let's send some more thoughts and prayers yeah. because that seems like that's the only words that that these people have yeah. when when these things happen. Um, even in, in you know in states where they are actually very pro gun, um, they they when things like that happen, they 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 never say, oh, we need to do something about the guns or we should you know con- put some legislations yeah. in place. They they always uh, come out saying that you know the thoughts and prayers are with the with the families and you know that's not going to sort change, the problem. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I remember he did that and and everybody was like, oh, is oh. this guy you know, <laughs> making a point? And he did it yeah. you know, in a very nice way in that way. But yeah, it shows that, uh, you know, the, the power that uh, these uh, uh, institutions have. Hands, yeah. is, is, uh, Definitely. And so not to stick just to, to the US, right? Like there are gun laws around the world as well, right? There's different, different countries have different ones. And, you know, starting off with the New Zealand um, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, uh, announced legislation legislation that aimed to further tighten the country's gun laws six months after the mass shooting in Christchurch that left 51 Muslim worshippers dead in 2019. Weak laws on fire uh, firearms were identified uh, as a key reason why a self-proclaimed white supremacist was able to own a semi-automatic weapon. Um, and then, you know, just neighboring in australia after the worst mass shooting in the nation's history the port arthur massacre in april 1996 a young man killed 35 people and wounded 23 others with a semi-automatic rifle less than two weeks later the conservative-led national government pushed through fundamental changes to the country's gun laws the national agreement on firearms all but prohibited automatic and semi-automatic assault rifles stiffened licensing and ownership rules and 
instituted a temporary gun buyback program that took some 650,000 assault weapons out of public circulation. Among other things, the law also required licenses to demonstrate a genuine need for a particular type of gun mm. and to take a firearm safety course. These are two great examples of, you know, it's it's sad they took a took a situation to, to pass these laws, yeah. but at least they made they, they took made action, an effort, right? right? They took action yeah. afterwards. And like New Zealand, you mentioned as well, you know, the, the, the prime minister, as you mentioned, she really took on that fight herself, you know, yeah. to, to, to make sure that, you know, uh, uh, a, uh, a you know a, dist- a difference is yeah, made. Yeah, a right? difference is made, and and something uh, you know as dis- destructive as that Christchurch uh, attack that we remember yeah. doesn't happen again. I mean, obviously, there has to be a concerted effort to try to to sort out it. I mean, um, and that takes uh, courage. That takes uh, you know um, uh, a cooperative effort. And the problem with 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 the U.S. Uh, I think is. There are states, and those states have their own, you know, yeah. uh, thing. And and uh, when it when it comes to politics, it's a very, you know, yeah, tricky ground, it's a tricky yeah. uh, field to play yeah. in, isn't yeah. it? But um, no, I th- I think that you know these examples are just testament to something happening and taking action afterwards. I think that if you found out that you were losing money every day, would you just ignore it mm. and like? But no, you wouldn't, right? And this is a loss of life. People's yeah. livelihoods are being impacted. You know, I, I sometimes I think about it, I can't imagine sending my child to school, right? not knowing and that, not knowing that happen, you're never yeah. going to see them again yeah. because some crazy person decided to to have go a bad and, day. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, just, yeah. Like, oh, it's it's it's, really it's very very to uh, tough. Um, I mean, you you did mention Australia. I mean, looking at UK for example, mm. uh, gun ownership is uh, limited to sporting rifles and shotguns. Uh, individuals need to obtain the license and register the gun with the author- authorities. A valid reason, such as hunting or sports, must be provided, and home protection is not uh, a valid reason. There are two types of licenses: firearm and shotgun licenses. Two references, as well as a GP's reference, are con- uh, contacted by the applicant. And after thorough background checks, applicants are then granted the license. So again, it's not easy hmm. to 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 have that. Um, I'm not and saying these that aren't we hard and fast rules y- yes. that are going to prevent anything, right? Exactly. It's, I mean, we have had the uh, gun. Uh, I mean, recently in Liverpool as yep. well, you know, where the uh, girl died. Yeah. So we have. It's not like we don't have. But compare that to the US, US, for example. Yeah. There is a huge difference. There's oh, you know difference of you know uh, completely um, a different story. But again. It shows that if you have strong measurements in place, strong laws in place to prevent it, then you limit the chances, right? Yeah. Rules are always going to be broken by Mm. someone, but, you know, the majority of people will, like, you know, abide by them. And or at least there's at least extensive things that can stop people from buying a gun. Like, you know, it's. They say that, I don't know the statistics, but it's, um, you know, just having a gun just in a, a certain vicinity just increases the uh, like potential for death like look i mean it doesn't even have to be malicious right yeah i mean that's accidental, another thing right? accidental as well i mean there's a lot of people who are just having their guns and they they don't have the proper safety training yeah. so if you have a gun in your house and and many americans might have several guns in their yeah. house right hidden in several places yeah 
So how do you make sure that, you know, children, uh, uh, teenagers maybe don't have access to that? How do they make sure that nobody accidentally, and there is ha- there's happened so many times that accidentally, you know, people have shot themselves. Yeah. You know, because it's just curiosity, boys. right? Yeah. Like, think about it. If you're yeah. a child and you see something that's locked away quite yeah. regularly, you're going to be like curious a toy, about yes. it. Yeah, yeah, you're going to be curious about it. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's, there's different, like, you know, Germany, for example, is one of the countries with the most strict gun laws mm. in Europe. In 2019, authorities approved even stricter gun control uh, c- gun controls on gun owners. Germany has one of the lowest rates of death by firearms of any country, according to one CDU member of Chancellor Ang- Angela Merkel's government. So I think that that's like it's it's what shocks me is that clearly when there's strict rules, these things happen less. Yeah. Right, just that simple thing. Like, how many examples do you need? And I get that this is the, it was part of the the um, the constitution, and and I understand that. But I don't know. It's, yeah, I mean, it does show you. And I mean, just one more example before we go to our next guest uh, is Japan, uh, which has highly restrictive firearm regulations with its extraordinarily low gun homicide rate, which is the lowest in the world at one in ten million according to the latest data which is available to us. Most guns are illegal in the country and ownership rates, which are quite small, reflect this. Um, under the J- Japan's firearm and sword law, the only guns permitted are shotguns, air guns, and guns that have research or industrial purposes, or those that are used for competitions. So, again, uh, it shows you how important the laws can be um, in a country. Uh, we're going to speak to Imam Azam Akram, who's our next guest. He's a missionary of uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, currently serving in Philadelphia, the United States. Uh, Imam Azam, uh, welcome back to the Drive Time Show. Welcome back to Voice of Islam. Uh, good to have you back. Yes, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Nice to be back. Uh, congratulations on your uh, your your uh, move to Philadelphia. I think uh, you you Imam Dibba was there, right before. Yes, yes, he was here. Now he's in St. Louis, right. and I'm in Philadelphia by okay. way of Seattle. Right, right, perfect. Um, so we've talked about gun laws and, um, you know, uh, compared different countries. We talked about United States as well. Um, we wanted to ask you, as obviously as a missionary um, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you, you understand the teachings of Islam. What are the Islamic teachings and the Islamic viewpoint on on owning and using of firearms what is allowed what is understood to be you know the right use of uh, of such things yes yes so islam uh, deals with this issue of the very common sense approach um that's the thing that seems to be missing because uh, you know during the time of the holy prophet from which where we get our guidance as muslims uh his practical example um, obviously, you and I know there were no guns at that time. Mm. For a teaching to be um, still holding any value, I mean, it must talk about issues like this. And so when we look at the life of the Holy Prophet, we know for a long time, when, you know, even in the height of persecution, the Prophet's first uh, mode was always to approach um, resolution to certain conflicts, you know, with, uh, you know, 
having a discussion, having a talk, calming down, taking a peaceful approach first. But there came a point in time where this was no longer possible because of you know, such a threat at that time on somebody's life. So we know Islam gives us guidance on how to use weapons and when are they necessary, why are they needed, so on and so forth. And so teachings of such nature have also been passed down to us and laws that have been instituted in ways which is known as something known as hudud, the hut that one can approach. Mm. For example, we know that the Prophet Muhammad made the statement to the fact that none of you should point at his brother a weapon at all because he does not know that Satan may make it lose it from his hand and as a result he may fall into the pit of hellfire, you mm-hmm. know, by accidentally somebody injuring somebody or shedding blood, mm-hmm. right? So things like this that he mentioned, he also mentioned in another statement of his that when two Muslims they need to fight each other with their swords, and now you can replace swords with something else. Both the killer, Qatil, and the Maktul, the one who has been killed, they both be doomed to hell. At that time, there's a companion sitting there and says, O oh, Prophet of Allah, that is the case with the killer, we understand, he'll be doomed to hell, but what about the one who was killed? And the Prophet replied, indeed, he was keen to kill his companion. Right? Mm-hmm. Another uh, statement of the Prophet says, when you walk in our markets, you know, you make sure that you should not have your sword un- unsheathed. They should be protected. They should be well secured, you know. So carelessness sometimes, like you gentlemen were talking about, um, leads to injur- injurious uh, circumstances and incidences. There are many reasons, but at the end of the day, what Islam recognizes is that this is a tool, you know, and a tool that's being used for the right reason and the right purpose, and there are right reasons and right purposes for this. For example, Islam encourages hunting. You know, one can own a weapon in order to hunt. That's a practical purpose or use. There are certain scenarios in which um, you might need uh, to defend yourself. And self-defense is one of those aspects which Islam allows you to, property, life, and your liberties, if they are uh, threatened in any way, meaning... But the thing is that Islam also subscribes that, you know, you don't bring a gun to a stick fight, you know? If you respond to the threat with the least, or at least at what the threat is posing at. So, for example, if you are being threatened with, and you could be threatened with anything, you don't respond to a verbal attack by presenting, uh, responding with a gun, and so on and so forth. Another thing Islam uh, uh, says is that it's not free and willy-nilly that everybody has a right to own a gun. You know, these guns come with certain responsibilities. Mm. For example, uh, you wouldn't, and it bars certain times, uh, during warfare, for sale of ammunition and for sale of guns. Mm. In times of fitna, you would call them. It's a big business, isn't it? Yeah. It's a big business. And so this is a more than just an individual issue. It's a very large-scale political issue. Guns have been used as currency. Uh, I live here in the streets of Philadelphia, as you know, you know, notorious for its gun, gun violence and gun, gun, gun crime. You know, the Prophet ﷺ predicted 
the end times for us as well in Sahih Muslim he says by him in whose hands is my life mm. you know he says a time would come when the murderer would not know why he was he committed the murder and the victim of the murderer would not know why he had been killed mm. my friend I see this in the streets right now you know somebody shot over you know looking at somebody the wrong way didn't know why he was killed you know so there are incidents like that that are happening on a minor level. You can talk about it in terms of uh, the, the 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 crime rate as well. Uh, you, I think before I got onto the call, you were mentioning how many Americans own guns. I mean, the American population is what 320, 330 million people. Yet we have close to, and I'm just talking about registered firearms. We have close to 400 million firearms that are legally registered. Not, not to talk of those which are not even registered. But then here's the, here's the skewed part, is that 30% of the American population owns those 400 million registered guns. Right? So if that's not excess, I don't know what is. And Islam doesn't promote that type of approach. You know, it, Islam is a very practical approach. It gives you codes of conduct, laws that it's laid out for you. Um, scenarios and obviously the greatest uh, importance is understanding you know here in the Jamaat we have guidance from our Khulafa and Khalifa mm. and it's also very important to understand what he talks about the underlying issues that need to be addressed and I'll quote this from uh, <clears throat> one of his sessions where uh, a young Wakpino child had asked about the uh, the violence here specifically in America Right. I don't know if you've quoted this have you quoted this for uh, your audience? Not yet, not yet. Yes, so please do mention that. Were, were, were you planning to? Yes, I think so. Okay, yeah, because I think Azur mentioned his best and encapsulates all this in a very beautiful summary in saying, and I quote, "Show sense, mm. don't be senseless." Mm. That is the foremost duty of the people of the United States and the government as well, right? Where there is frustration, these atrocities happen. If you forget your duties, your obligations, and purpose of your life, then these atrocities occur. Hence, it is the responsibility of Amdi Muslims, as true Muslims, that they let people understand what are their duties and obligations. What is the purpose of their life? So, discharge your duties as though you owe it to your Creator. Mm. You know that the purpose of your life is not just to attain worldly targets, but to worship Allah the Almighty, bow down before Him, always keep your life on your life hereafter, or always keep your eyes on the life hereafter. And then you should know that the second important task given to us as a religious person, as a human being, is to discharge our duties that we owe to each other. So instead of trying to snatch or grab your rights, you should try to give rights to others. Yeah, absolutely. If every person realizes this, hmm. gives due rights to the other person, then the frustrations will automatically vanish. Hmm. I mean, this is the holistic approach to this issue that we're dealing with here in the United States. Hmm. But it's so well encapsulated that, you know, just the recent shootings, we've had close to, what, 300-plus mass shootings this year? Hmm. Unheard of. But the fact of the matter is, the latest ones, when you look at, they weren't mentally deranged, they weren't mentally challenged. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh. You know? mm. They were just looking for notoriety. Mm. You know, so there's a lot of variables that go in the equation of what the motivations are. Mm. And obviously, it's impossible to control human thought and human thought processes. But for we know, and now in this day and age of certain types of predictive behavior that one can lead to understand that this may lead to something. And, and we need to work together as, you know, citizens of this country, especially America. To try to get our politicians to realize that this is more than just the NRA and all the other uh, political uh, uh, labels that are attached to gun violence and all that other stuff. Mm. This, this is this is leading to right now what Time Magazine called <laughs> there's there's almost a possibility of a civil war breaking out in the United States. Mm. You know? Yeah. I mean, we we spoke to uh, Dr. Sadaf Jaffer. Actually, I don't know if you were able to 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 listen into her because she she is Assemblywoman, State Representative from New Jersey, and she actually talked about how strict the laws uh, are there and how you know uh, the the politicians have have tried to combat that with actually mm. trying to work towards you know making the regulations to to safeguard people. So again, as you said, you know said uh, that politicians do need to realize in some places they seem to work towards that but then again you know all states need to have some kind of approach uh, where they uh, think about the people think about the children the future um, and try to protect well it's them. also very yeah it's interesting the demographics here in america especially mm-hmm. in the east coast things are a little bit more gun wise under control mm-hmm. but like coming from the state of washington where uh, we're based in uh, seattle yeah. which is in the state of washington you know the eastern part of washington is 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 almost like a f- it's a free for all so you try to enact these gun state laws that you see in new jersey out there you know it's not going to fly so there has to be that level of consistency throughout and this is what the fragmented state policies out here have resulted in you know yeah. so trying to enact certain policies in montana will not fly as they are in new jersey mm. you know and that's the reality of the lay of the land out here yeah you know? no. yeah that's true uh, thank you very much uh, imam uh, azamakram uh, for joining us from philadelphia the united states uh, jazakallah for your time may allah bless you amen amen assalamualaikum walaikum assalam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh so <clears throat> you know as uh, imam azamakram was explaining um, uh, the islamic uh, perspective i think it's a good time to actually you know play something for you where the uh, fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmad our worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um has actually spoken about this and that's something that Imam Azam Akram also was um asking us about and you know the question that was asked what what can be done uh, for the problem um about the problem uh, of mass shootings and gun violence in America so let's have a listen to that my question is mass shootings such as the one in an elementary school in Texas earlier this week are becoming increasingly common in the United States what should the United States do to avo- to avoid such tragedies in the future you see show sense don't be senseless that is the foremost duty of the people of the united states and the government as well where there is frustration these things happen if you forget your duties your obligations 
purpose of your life, then these things happen. So when these things happen, then this is the responsibility of Ahmadis. We, as a true Muslim, that let the people understand what are their duties and obligations. What is the purpose of their life? So, if you are discharging your duties, you owe to your Creator. You know that the purpose of your life is not just to attain the worldly targets, but to worship Allah Ta'ala, bow before Him, and always keep your eye on your life hereafter. Right? And then you should know that uh, the second important task given to us as a religious person, as a human being, is to discharge our duties we owe to each other. So, if instead of trying to snatch and grab your rights, we should try to give rights to others. If every person realizes this thing and uh, give due right to the other person, then this frustration will automatically vanish. Right? Until and unless you make these people realize the purpose of their life, you cannot stop this thing. And at the same time, you should also enact some laws to stop these things. You see, if there's no restriction, everyone is free to go to the arms shop and buy whatever he likes or she likes, then this should be the ultimate result of it, what is happening. So in my view, government should also now take steps and they should impose some restriction on it. At least if arm lobby is against licenses and restriction on it, they should at least limit some age that this age group is not permitted to buy arms, especially automatic or semi-automatic. And uh, at the same time, the programs which are being shown on television, internet, or all these media channels, they are also showing extremism, fights, and such type of things, which also make a sense of fun among the youngsters. That should also be checked and stopped. As far as we are concerned, we cannot do anything. 
this is the duty of the government to put some restriction on it, whatever they feel appropriate. Legislators should also enact some law in this regard. But our duty is that we should pray for the people of the world, for the people of our country. Allah Ta'ala give them sense and also preach to the people and let them understand what their responsibilities are. So that was what the uh, current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizza Masur Ahmad, uh, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, have said uh, when, you know, a, a, a young member asked him about what can be done. Again, I mean, what he said about sense, you know, uh, you have to have sense. the sense. It makes sense, yeah? yeah. I mean, you have to have be sensible if you're a politician, if you are yeah. people who are, uh, you know, making the policies and putting in the laws. And then you also have to be use sense if you are, you know, a person who owns gun, for yeah. example. And also, you know, uh, make sure that you, you remember God. And I think it all comes down to the same thing, isn't it? I mean, with everything that we do in our life, that if we fear that we'll be responsible, if we just realize that we'll be, we'll be responsible for what we are doing and that uh, Allah the Almighty is watching us, mm. God is watching us, then we'll be careful with, with everything. Um, and try to benefit people and help people rather than causing any sort of damage to somebody. Yeah, I think the other thing is that um, I know often arguments are that um, oh, alcohol kills or, or like smoking kills. They they're not like restricted as much. But for me, with guns in particular, they are designed to kill someone. Mm. Right, like they are. They're actually like you don't. What else is there for a gun to do, right? Like, if it's not loaded, if like if it's not shooting, then it's not serving its purpose as an object. Mm. And I think that um, I actually saw someone going online um, very stupidly, actually uh, driving past people, uh, pretending that he was about to do a drive-by, or holding a hairbrush mm. out, mm. like, and just scare to scare people as a prank, and. Um, uh, and funnily enough, um, someone pulled a gun on him, and like that's just it's it's that act of hey you are like you possess something that says something. Mm. It says that you're on the defense before a conversation is yeah. even even started. And also, right? it can it can it can make people become on the edge as well, yeah. isn't it? I mean, and make them jumpy, look, make them react. How many probably. instances haven't we seen where? the police have come up maybe to stop someone mm. and they have maybe reached for the license or something yeah. down or in the glove exactly. box and pe police might have thought, That's oh, it. he's reaching for his gun, shoot him. Yeah. You know, so, so so many accidents can happen like that and yeah. unfortunate events can happen like that. As you mentioned, you know, it, it might look like somebody um, is just holding, uh, you know, a gun, but it might be something else. So, yeah. so again, to, to avoid that, uh, one has to use sense. Uh, yeah. But on the other side, I think one... One thing that people argue that is that when if everybody have guns, and if you live in an area where where you know people are have have guns, and that obviously robberies happen, you know, uh, for your own safety, for your for your own family's safety, would it be okay to, for you to keep a gun because mm. you know that that in the area that you live in, you could be under threat, and if you don't have a gun, how how are you supposed to defend yourself? I mean, mm. if you live in in such an environment, if you live in in certain area in the United States. 
It's a difficult one, isn't it? I th- I th- I get that. I can understand that point of view, but for me, you're just adding to it, right? You're just adding to it by possessing one. You're adding to, yes, it's an unsafe area, or you know, you're trying to protect yourself. I think that, but you having a gun will make you more likely to be involved in whatever crosshairs that you find yourself in. So for me, I, I don't think it holds too much weight, personally. Okay. Fahim, we have an answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we're coming towards uh, towards the end of the show, but let's just quickly have a look at some proposals. Uh, the, Uni- uh, the, the New York Times published in June 2022 that if the gun control proposals now being considered in Congress had been law since 1999, four gunmen younger than 21 would have been blocked from legally buying the rifles they used in mass shootings. Uh, The Democratic Party also are proposing several policies with different prospects of becoming law. So I know we've talked about some of this, but just to sum it up, uh, raising the minimum age to purchase certain guns to 21, mm-hmm. expanding background checks to cover private sales, encouraging safe gun storage and punishing people who fail to secure the guns from children and criminals, yeah. expanding red flag laws to remove guns from people in crisis who are deemed an immediate threat to themselves or others, and banning so-called assault weapons such as semi-automatic rifles, pistols, and shotguns. So these are some of the proposals. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, again, I think we'll go back to the teaching of Islam where Mm. um, I think one verse of the Holy Quran really does give us um, a a clear answer. And that is that, you know, if you have killed one person, it's like you've killed the the whole whole mankind mankind, unjustly. And if you have saved the one person, it's like you've saved the whole mankind so um in that way you know the 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 we would be a better society most definitely with less guns there's no doubt about that and that's something that we see statistically because we looked at different countries we looked yep. at germany for example we looked at japan and obviously we look at the uk as well where the police doesn't go around having guns they 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 have other methods they have tasers or whatever right but it does show you that it limits uh, and drastically reduces the uh, chance, yeah. Yeah, chance of uh, of disaster. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think the Islamic perspective aside, we know that this is, you know, uh, something that we need to control. And you know, we've discussed two great topics today. Um, I think that they'll never get enough coverage as as they should. Um, because you know they're important subjects and international aid um, being one of them and gun control being the other absolutely and we would also like to thank the uh, producers uh, for today's show Munahil Nasir, Kafia Ahmed and Farah Mirza um, grateful for their hard work as well as our technical staff um, and also to all of our guests who joined us from uh, various parts of the country, yeah. so of, of the world, actually. So thank you for that. And also for everybody listening and joining us tomorrow for another live program here from Voice of